Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. The issue I'd like to talk about today is not one that we discuss in detail very frequently. I have mentioned it before and talked about it at some length, uh, and I don't think it's necessary to talk about it in detail too often. For most people, it's something that's been dealt with, and we can cheerfully uh, uh, proceed on that basis. But nonetheless, it is something that's worth revisiting now and then, just to get our thinking straight. And also because um, we are uh, blessed here at All Saints with the privilege of welcoming people from a variety of different traditions within the Christian church, you may take slightly different views uh, on this topic. And it's also something which, to be honest, uh, there's always the possibility that um, our hearts are in the right place, but our actions aren't quite there yet. And so it's something that's worth uh, just dropping back on occasionally and digging into the scriptural uh, material about just to try and spur everyone on to initial or ongoing repentance in this matter. I'm referring to the subject of tithing. By tithing, I mean uh, giving voluntarily as the people of God, all of us, a tenth of our increase, what the Lord blesses us with, to support the ministry of the church, the people of God. And uh, this is uh, found in our confessional standards. It's found throughout the Bible. It's actually uh, found in our uh, pledges uh, for new members here at All Saints. That's the context in which the subject is mentioned occasionally, but it's worthwhile occasionally. Um, uh, it's, sorry, it's mentioned frequently at the moment because we keep getting new members joining, but um, uh, it's uh, rarely discussed in great detail. I mean, there are probably churches where you could go to where you wouldn't hear this subject touched on at all for months or years at a time. It is somewhat awkward, I suppose, talking about money, but if we don't talk about it, as my fellow pastor here, Pastor Neil, likes to say, if we don't talk about it, we'll never talk about it. So let's talk about it. And in fact, speaking of Pastor Neil, this was prompted somewhat uh, by uh, the Wednesday night Bible study that he led on the book of Hebrews. He's been working his way through the book of Hebrews on Wednesday nights. Uh, and just this last week, uh, we were in Hebrews 7. And here we read this. So Hebrews 7 verse 4. Speaking of Melchizedek, the great priest king of Salem, the city that became Jerusalem, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. Now, what's that referring to? Well, it's initially referring to uh, the account of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, which we'll go to in a second. But notice just a couple of things. Melchizedek is a priest and a king, the f uh, a foreshadowing in a sense of the great or greater priest king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a king descended from the tribe of Judah, uh, not able to be a Levitical priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi, but he doesn't need to be a Levitical priest because he's a Melchizedekian priest. The Lord revived this ancient order of priesthood from Genesis 14 and perhaps elsewhere in order to instate Jesus the king also as a priest in the order of Melchizedek which is what Hebrews chapter 7 says notice also just in passing verse 5 of Hebrews 7 those descendants of Levi that is the Levites who served in the tabernacle and later in the temple uh, receive tithes from the people that's why the Levites under the older covenants didn't uh, receive land as an inheritance in the book of Joshua. They don't receive land except a tiny portion just to graze a few goats on around their cities and so on. 
they don't, certainly don't receive enough land to make a living off agriculturally. And the reason is they don't need to because they receive the offerings by fire that are given by the people of God to the Lord. So they're supported by the tithes of the people of God. So much for uh, Hebrews 7. Um, this invites us then to begin a bit of a journey through uh, some uh, points in Scripture which will highlight some issues connected with this. I want to go back to uh, Genesis 14 uh, and then a few other texts and just to draw out um, some practical implications and some of the biblical background to this teaching about tithing. So first up, let's just jump into Genesis 14. Uh, and I'll just recount what's going on here and uh, make a few observations about it. Uh, first, I'll, you remember context. Um, this is way back in the very earliest days of the people of God. It's a couple of chapters after the call of Abraham, where Abraham has been told to go um, from your country and your father's house to the land. I'll show you. I'll make of you a great nation, the Lord says, and um, so on and so forth. I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. He who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a promise to Abraham. He's going to be the head of a great multinational nation of people. He's the head of the people of God, the representative of the people of God. And so what happens a couple of chapters later, his relative Lot gets into a pickle with being captured by some other kings. And so Abraham goes, takes his 318 men and, uh, well, rescues Lot basically from captivity. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings, Kedorlaomer is one of the kings who, who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the, king, the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So there's Abram with the king of Sodom, as it happens, and also Melchizedek, the king of Salem, uh, who brings out bread and wine. That's interesting. He was priest of God Most High. So he's a king and a priest in Jerusalem. And he brings out bread and wine to the people of God. This is one of the reasons why, of course, he's seen as um, a type of Christ. He's the priest king of the future center of the people of God who brings out bread and wine for Abraham, the representative of God's people. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything as though it were the most natural thing in the world. And that's the first point I want to highlight, really, from this text, that the, the practice of tithing seems in some mysterious sense to be built into the fabric of creation as an expression of appropriate generosity by the people of God, even the great patriarch, Abraham. Uh, the connection between Christ and Melchizedek is, of course, elucidated later, Psalm 110, uh, Hebrews 7, and that makes sense of why the tithes, uh, the tithe would be paid to him. Uh, but notice there's no uh, kind of specific revelation here that Abraham receives, as though tithing is a strange or unusual thing to do. It does seem to be the case that it is built into how things ought to work. It's possible even that this is reflected in what uh, Cain and Abel did, or rather what Cain should have done and what Abel did. Um, that's more speculative, I think, but we can certainly say from this that this is no newfangled thing, and neither is it something which needs explanation. It ought to be obvious that we express our gratitude to um, God's king, God's priest, the representative of God in this context, um, the one who mediates to, uh, between at least his people and God, as is described here. He's priest of God most high. Is natural to tithe to him. Now that actually helps us with a couple of other things related to um, the 
stance of different Christian traditions on this matter. I mentioned earlier that we've been blessed at All Saints to welcome um, uh, people from a variety of different uh, Reformed and Evangelical backgrounds. And as far as I can make out, uh, as we've been welcoming people, at least as I've been talking to people as they've been preparing for membership, uh, most, if not all, are familiar with uh, and certainly when they make their membership vows at All Saints, they commit to uh, practice or to go on practicing this uh, biblical precept of giving a tenth of their increase to the work of the church um, uh, as uh, an act of faithfulness and obedience to God. And that, that way it goes to support the ministry of the church, it goes to support uh, ministers like Pastor Neil and myself, it goes to su support the purchase of buildings and other resources and other staff members, it goes into our missionary giving, it goes into uh, other benevolence, it goes into a whole variety of different things, fixing air conditioners, laying carpet, all those kinds of necessary things to keep a church and its building and its resources functioning. Um, and the stance of different Christian traditions on this matter is worth highlighting because within the Reformed and Evangelical world, there has been an ongoing debate over the last few decades and even longer than that about whether this practice of tithing is really required for New Covenant Christians. Now, why would that be if it's spelled out here so obviously? Well, the answer really is because sometimes the practice of tithing is seen as an Old Testament law thing. And of course, it's there in the Old Testament law. It's there in Genesis, in, um, forgive me, in Deuteronomy 14, uh, Leviticus 27 and elsewhere. Uh, and so it gets tangled up with these questions about the extent to which the Old Testament law and the details of its prescriptions are binding on Christians. And so you'll know that there are some traditions, evangelical traditions, well-meaning and godly Christian folk um, around us all over the place, who would want to say, yeah, the Old Testament law is, is good and useful, but it's not useful as a guide for life in that kind of detail. Uh, in that sense, it's passed away. It's no longer binding on the Christian. Uh, and I'd want to say, well, okay, um, we can have a debate about that if you like. Certainly our confessional position as a church, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, is that the uh, general equity of the law is binding on um, Christians. We have a lot to learn both about Christ and about our sin and also about how we should live from the Old Testament law. And frequently in Christian circles, you'll have conversations between people from different traditions all about this. And tithing gets tangled up with it because tithing is mentioned in the Old Testament law. And so some people want to say, well, we're not required to tithe because, well, it's in the Old Testament law. It, it's not really mentioned in the New Testament as something that Christians have to do. Therefore, we've got to give, we've got to be generous, but we don't have to tithe. Well, that's a mistake, actually. And it's a mistake on two counts. The first mistake, I think, is that that way of understanding the Old Testament law is wrong. I think the Westminster Standards are exactly right on this issue, that the general equity of the Old Testament law is binding on Christians. And so we should presume some kind of continuity in that point. But even if we disagreed about the so-called third use of the law, the, um, the use of the, Christian law for, the, the Old Testament law for Christian ethics as a guide to life, even if we disagreed with that, about that with um, other Christian friends, it would have no relevance at all to the question of tithing. No relevance at all. Because tithing here is instituted as a practice which our forefather in the faith, Abraham, practices well before the law of Moses is given. Tithing is not a practice that depends upon our reading of the Old Testament law. The details of how we would practice it, if we do, which we should, will be shaped by our reading of the Torah of Moses, um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and so on. 
But here, way back in the patriarchal period, long before Moses, tithing is clearly a part of the way things ought to be. So even if you thought, even if you thought, uh, and if you do think this, please come and see Pastor Neil or me, but if, even if you thought that the Old Testament law really had no moral binding quality for believers, tithing would still have such a binding force within that way of thinking, because it's right here, long before Moses. Notice also, and this um, invites us actually to make a transition to, to think about some of the uh, other texts, um, which I'll, I'll come to in a second, uh, but notice that the receipt of the tithes by Melchizedek is correlated with the gift of bread and wine by Melchizedek. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine to Abraham. Abraham brings the tithe to Melchizedek. And it doesn't take too much uh, interpretive subtlety or hermeneutical imagination to see this as a picture of what ought to happen in the worship service. Put positively, we bring our tithes to the Lord, Jesus Christ, and he brings out bread and wine for us. This is, in effect, a little bit like a worship service. In fact, one of the young men at the Bible study on Wednesday, uh, you know who you are, uh, made exactly that comment. It's a little bit like a worship service. It's exa exactly right. It's like a worship service. And so positively, uh, it shows us how our laying down of what God has given us, the tenth, the first tenth of our income, ought to be correlated with the gift of bread and wine. Negatively, uh, it's possible to imagine that uh, we could turn the thing on its head and say, well, what would happen to somebody who said, well, I'm not bringing the tenth? Well, if you inserted that into this passage, it'd be quite hard to imagine Melchizedek bringing out the bread and wine with such enthusiasm, wouldn't it? Um, the bread and wine is brought out to the ones who tithe. And it's really for this reason that first our membership pledges mention this. This is something we've all promised to do. And uh, it's not something that we should take lightly. Uh, it's something which is correlated here with receiving that covenant meal from the table of the priest king. And then related to that, it actually explains some of the later uh, biblical narrative and prophetic texts that mention tithing or related matters. And I wanted to spend just a moment or two sharing those with you. Now, I don't, um, these are not um, easy and pleasant and enjoyable texts to read, actually. Um, they function in their context much more as warnings than anything else. But as I said, we know, all of us, don't we? We know, we know that from time to time we need warnings. We need exhortations with teeth. Uh, and uh, those things are placed in Scripture as a gift to us, as an act of kindness. It wouldn't be right for us to have a conversation about, well, it's important and good for us to tithe without exploring what Scripture says happens in circumstances when the people of God refuse to do so. And so there's two or three places we might fruitfully turn. Nehemiah chapter 13 is the first, uh, which is headed in my Bible actually quite appropriately, Nehemiah's final reforms. This is after the um, uh, rebuilding of the walls and the gates of the city of Jerusalem and the reading of the law and the renewal of the covenant uh, in the book of Nehemiah after the exile. You remember the people have come back from uh, exile in uh, Babylon and um, Nehemiah finds out that a few decades later everything's in ruin and disgrace and he's distraught and brokenhearted by this and he resolves with the king's permission to go back 
to help lead the rebuilding effort. And it works really well, and it's, well, with some ups and downs, but basically to get it all done. And then his final reforms, and he realises there's some structural, social reforms that need putting in place. And one of them has to do with tithing. So, chapter 13, verse 10. I also found out, Nehemiah says, that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurer over the storehouses, all these officials and so on and so forth. Uh, they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. That is the other Levites, the other uh, men who were serving in the sanctuary. Now, why is that so significant? Well, what uh, Nehemiah observes is basically that the worship of the people of God has, if not stopped, dramatically slowed because the Levites had not received their tithes, so they had, quote, fled each to his field. Well, you would, wouldn't you? Because you've got to make a living from somewhere. And if the tithes aren't being brought in in the form of offerings to be offered to the Lord from which the Levites would take their portion, if those gifts and tithes aren't being brought in, the Levites are going to have to go back to their alternative employment just in order to make ends meet. So he's pretty upset about this, and so he gets a few people, bangs a few heads together. I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Which is what would happen if the people of God stopped tithing. The house of God would be forsaken in the end, because there'd be nobody there to do the work, and there'd be no house of God in which to do it. And he gathered them all together and told them what to do, and then all Judah brought in the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. They start tithing again, and he's like, this is better. This is how it's supposed to be. Now let's put these people in place structurally so that we know um, that the tithe's being brought in. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds, which I've done for the house of my God and for his service. In other words, Nehemiah considers it a good and important thing and asks God to remember him for cracking a few heads together and saying, look, you're not tithing, you need to tithe. Get back to tithing. And then the worship of the house of God, the people of God can continue. Now, just for clarity and full disclosure, uh, as it happens, I make sure that I do not know uh, as a routine matter how much anybody gives. I don't have, I deliberately don't have access to the uh, files that uh, just one or two of the other officers of the church have access to where they keep track of people's giving. You know, um, uh, who those of you who are at All Saints, that every year you receive a statement to submit to the IRS just stating how much you're, um, you've given and to, so that you can uh, uh, make a note of that on your tax returns and so on. Um, that's done by somebody else. I have no access to any of that information, and that's quite deliberate. I don't want to know how much you earn. And uh, I don't think it's necessary or appropriate to do so. But the flip side of that is at some point we've got to come together and we've got to say, well, let's make sure we're committed to this, shall we? And part of the reason is because of the tremendously serious consequences of failing to do so, which are highlighted in the second and third texts I want to draw to your attention briefly as we conclude, which are in Haggai chapter 1 and then specifically in Malachi chapter 3. Haggai chapter 1 um, uh, doesn't mention tithing specifically, but it seems that that's what's uh, at least partly in view because uh, Haggai complains, or rather the Lord complains to and through Haggai that the house of God is being neglected because people are too concerned with their own panelled houses. They're feathering their own nests and they've not been devoting themselves to rebuilding and maintaining the house of the Lord. Is it a time for you to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Well, no. By implication, he says. Uh, and then he points out 
Consider your ways, end of chapter 1, verse 5. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. The implication there is really quite disturbing. That the Lord has so structured his providential dealings with his people that those people who have been withholding what they should have given to the house of God have started to notice that they sow their seed but they never manage to harvest enough and they eat but they're never full and they lose money all the time they put money in their purse and it just kind of falls out through holes that they didn't realize were there and no one is warm despite the fact that they're all clothed the sense of poverty actually and dissatisfaction and providential loss of income here Haggai traces to uh, the fact they're not giving appropriately and presumably not tithing and so he says consider your ways how are you going to fix this well fix the giving thing go up into the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and I, I may be glorified again I say it doesn't mention tithing specifically but clearly it's calling for reallocation of an appropriate part of your labour towards doing what's necessary to reinstitute worship at the house of God, uh, which at this point would mean away from your fields, which he's mentioned earlier, and up into the wooded foothills of the mountains around Jerusalem so that uh, wood can be cut and the house of God can be rebuilt. I don't think it's the case, therefore, on the, the basis of this, that if somebody is struggling uh, with, uh, let's say, loss of income uh, or struggling financially. I don't think it's the case that we should make the assumption that that's because they're not tithing. That would be a mistake. It's not true that the reason why somebody might be struggling with income is always that they're not tithing. But it is the case that one of the things that ought to be in such a person's mind, if they find themselves in verse 6, is, well, is it the case that I'm also in verse 7 and verse 8? It's not the case that such a person definitely is and that we should draw that conclusion about him or her. That would be judgmental and unreasonable and unbiblical and ungodly in every way. It is the case that somebody themselves ought to consider this as just a, well, let me just make sure. Let me just make sure. Uh, because clearly here the consequences are quite significant. And they're spelled out more explicitly in relating to in relation to tithing uh, uh, explicitly in Malachi chapter 3. You know the book of Malachi, it's a very blunt and um, forceful prophecy in which the Lord speaks uh, through Malachi with a um, uh, uh, answering a whole bunch of questions really uh, that the people of God have um, uh, been asking him or asking one another um, and I'll just cut to um, chapter 3 where should we go from um, verse 8 where the Lord says will man rob God yet you are robbing me but you say and here's one of their questions well how have we robbed you and the Lord answers in your tithes and contributions you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me the whole nation of you Robbing God, that is, because the tithe is only given to us so that we can give it back to him. It's given us for that purpose alone. And so if we're withholding it, it's actually stealing from that which belongs to God. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, God says, 
that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you'll be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Just look at this negatively first. Uh, you are cursed because you're robbing me because you're not tithing which is a fairly stark and blunt thing to say. Told you, Malachi, fairly forceful prophecy. And uh, then positively, uh, but still with an eye towards those negative consequences, the Lord promises that uh, if you return to tithing faithfully, verse 11, I'll rebuke the devourer, which presumably is a name uh, for some kind of crop-destroying pests or insects or something, which is what and I, um, ESV footnote says, I'll rebuke those locusts and weevils and everything else so that they will no more destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. If you come back to tithing, I'll bless your labours. How foolish it would have been for the people of God to think, well, no, we'll just withhold the tithe and, and work really hard and put this kind of seed back to work because then we'll have more seed to sow and therefore we'll get more harvest. The Lord says, well, I'll just let the devourers come. If you don't give the tithe voluntarily, I'll take it. I'll send somebody else to consume what otherwise would have been consumed by fire on my altar. Uh, that at least seems to be the message here. And then positively, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I say this with a degree of hesitancy, but I just want to rephrase and restate what that verse says. It's right there in Malachi 3 verse 10 where the prophet appears to invite the non-tithing Israelites to test him. Go on try it out. See what will happen if you bring the tithe that you're supposed to bring to the work of the Lord. See what will happen and and make a note of it. Uh, see if I will not open the floodgates, open the windows of heaven and pour out upon you so much blessing that you won't have space for it. And that's the positive promise here that even this robust and blunt prophet Malachi leaves us with. And it's really striking, I think, that it's right at the end of the Old Testament. It's, it's the thing that's almost the thing that's ringing in our ears as a chapter and a bit um, uh, between that and the beginning of Matthew's gospel. But this is the thing that's ringing in our ears as we approach the dawning age of the Messiah in Matthew chapter 1. Just test the Lord. Just in this. Don't go testing the Lord generally. That's a bad idea. But test me in this and see what will happen. If you start tithing faithfully and see if I don't open the, the windows of heaven and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. There is a biblical connection in some contexts between faithfulness and fruitfulness. And there's just no other way of parsing this text. Uh, we're a long way from the uh, distortions and perversions of the so-called prosperity gospel. Here we're just saying, what does Malachi say? And that's what he seems to say. So I invite you. Um, if this is a practice which, to be honest, would be new to you were you to start it, uh, test God. Do what Malachi says and just see what happens. Now, you may have all kinds of practical questions about that. And I really, really do want to encourage you to come and talk to Pastor Neil or me if that's the case. I know there are sometimes practical questions about um, uh, should I tithe before or after tax and uh, what taxes uh, in particular should I take into account and in what way and so on and so forth. Um, there are all kinds of details and I don't want to get into the, the complexities of that 
in a podcast, which is going to go out to lots of people in lots of different situations. And therefore, the, the specific details of one person's situation will be relevant to almost nobody. Uh, but please come and talk to somebody. Uh, we don't need to talk amounts. Um, like I said, I'm not interested in knowing how much you or anybody else earns. Uh, but uh, I am interested in uh, doing what I'm called to do, which is to set before you the teaching of Scripture about this issue, about its importance, about the dangers of neglecting it, and about the profound blessings that are promised to the people of God and to individuals within the people of God for obedience in this matter. I hope that's been helpful. Uh, I hope it's not felt like too much of a beat-up. It's not supposed to be a beat-up at all. It's supposed to be an exhortation, which is just seeking to reflect what Scripture says on a subject that I think is probably neglected a little bit and is certainly very important. All right. Well, God bless you. And I look forward to seeing you very soon. God willing. Bye for now. <laughs>